Hello, everybody. This is Bill, and I'm with Jim. And today we are back at the table to talk about everything related to historical wargaming. And today's show, we're going to hit the topic of what was the best era of wargaming. Now, that can be a two-folded question. It could be what is the era that's best to be played or what was the best era for wargaming. We'll talk about that, catch up on some news. We'll catch up on what Jim's been doing and much, much more right after this in three, two, one. Big Duke Six Eagle Thrust. Put on Sidewar off. Make it loud. And the Romeo Fox God, Shall we dance? You are listening to the Citrep Podcast, your source for everything related to historical wargaming. Whether you are looking for the latest wargaming news, reviews, painting tutorials, or playthroughs, you will hear about it right here. So grab your favorite beverage or brush and let's hit it. Okay, we're back. Welcome, everybody. And I will get everything set up the way we need to have it set up. Perfect. Jim, welcome back to the show. I hope you've had some good rest. I saw some beach pictures at some point, which, you know, I'm not too surprised since you literally live almost on the beach. But, uh, you know, I hope you got to get away and enjoy some of that beautiful Florida fall weather. Hey, Jim, your mic's muted. Apologies for that. Hello, That's okay, everybody. no problem. Um, what I was trying to say was uh, it's been great so far um, as far as, you know, I'm taking some time off. Um, the weather's, you know, finally getting nice down here. I mean, this is Florida. We're basically in, you know, opposite world. Mm -hmm. uh, when everyone else's weather gets terrible, ours actually starts to get nice. So, yeah, it's been great so far. Definitely. Uh, Taking the opportunity to, you know, relax a little bit. Good. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Uh, have you been doing any hobbying during your time off or just pretty much? Not really. Okay. Um, we did run one game with Mark Ritchie's Tactical Combat um, where we did uh, sort of a 80th anniversary of, of commemorative game of Tarawa. I've been helping out some guys uh, in our Discord with Panzer Leader mm -hmm. um, questions and conversion tables and stuff like that. And um, helping uh, Damon with some, uh, he's got a U.S. Marine Corps project going. So, you know, um, like World War II, a U.S. Marine Corps. So, like, just some basic questions. Very nice. That's pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, Jim has been on a sabbatical, if you will. Um, you know, the poor man runs his fingers to the bone 10 ways to Sunday. And uh, he needed some time, well-deserved time off. So I hope you're recharging those batteries and um, all that and everything's doing well for you. Um, for me, um, as you know, last Sunday for the Halloween uh, show, it, it nowhere compares to Jim's typical annual Halloween game, but uh, I, I delved back into the days of the Roman Empire and chariots. Yeah, I saw that. That was a good video. Thank you. Um, oh, Tuffy's in the house. Welcome. Good morning. Um, so I found a virtual version of, essentially, it, the rule set is essentially uh, Circus Maximus from Avalon Hill. Uh, the way you set up your teams and the way it races, it's 
almost a literal digital adaptation of it. Uh, it's fun, but I, I found it lacking in one big area, and that is it's only single player. If you've ever played Circus Maximus, the more people you have racing chariots in the circus, the more fun it is. Um, because it's, you know, it's all out, you're crashing chariots and whipping horses, and you can even whip the other person's horses to make them go faster in turns and, you know, all, all that fun stuff. So, uh, while this, uh, this game, uh, touched on the flavor of Circus Maximus, it didn't quite, you know, fill the cup, if you will. So, um, Yeah. It, it, it was very interesting. Uh, they do have a second edition coming out, which would be multiplayer. So when that comes out, um, we'll see how that goes. Um, other than that, I've been digging into an older project, and I'm going to just shoot over to another camera here real quick. Um, these guys. So these are 3 mil, and I'll bring them up a little closer. Uh, those are 3 mil M1s. There's the nice. headquarters squad troop this is a troop so this is an armored cav uh so you have you know squadrons and then the headquarters um so because awesome. i'm i'm looking forward to getting them on the table and i might even go hexes with those um you know for the tabletop and you know almost do a what drove me to this there was a game that's played by the Midwest Historical Mentor Game Society. Uh, they had their, you know, we covered Automores. Uh, unfortunately, we had a lot of corrupted files in our video files, so we were only able to get out like two interviews. Uh, it is a very small event anyways. I think it's, it's a single room event, but um, they host Panzer Blitz or Panzer Leader, one of the two, in miniature form on a big, you know, hex table. Um, I'm like, well, why can't we do something similar in moderns, right? Um, and we do bench leader modern all the time. Yeah. So, and and then that led me to another thought: is does it have to be truly historical? Historical. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, we we talk about the fold the gap a lot and uh, other what ifs, um, you know. And it's like, well, what if the Russians did break through in uh, Eastern Germany somewhere, you know, now that Germany's one country and how would we respond and all that? So to take three mil, I know three mils a lot, but when you're talking about a four by four, four by six table, three mil versus six, 10, 12, 20, 20, you know, eight, whatever, um, gives you a little bit more perspective on ranges and distances and things like that. Um, I won't go any smaller than three mil. I've seen guys play two mil and it's basically just a little lump of lead, you know, on a, on a base, you know, and they put a little paint on and say, that's that. Oh, okay. Uh, at least at three mil, um, I still get a little bit of detail on the miniatures here. I'll shoot back to it real quick and see if I can get the camera to focus on it, which it should. There it goes. And so you can still tell that's an M1, and you've got Humvees, and you've got trucks there. This is the headquarters, right? You know, so you're you're 65 and 66 track. Yeah, so, and that way, you know, even if you're limited for space, you can still play a pretty decent game. And then I wanted to take it one step further, and 
Gemini's most favorite modern armored game rule set ever. Team Yankee. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and improve on it, right? Um, if you guys have ever played, and I don't want to bash Team Yankee or, uh, you know, um, the guys there, um, but it's a parking lot game. At 28 mil, you're literally on a 4 by 4 table, and well, especially if you're playing the Russians, you just have armor and vehicles everywhere, and it's literally stacked next to each other. I, I think a lot of that is the event we were at. They were limited to 4 by 4 tables. Yeah. And a lot of the parking lot stuff that you do see in the game, to be honest, um, it might not be the most popular opinion, but I think whenever like, oh, bolt action's a game for, you know, very basic players or nobody plays bolt action historically or Team Yankee's a parking lot game. Whenever a game picks up a certain reputation, a lot of times <clears throat> I feel that it's not the game's fault. It's it's the community's fault. It's the players. Okay. Yeah. Um, I people build a list for team Yankee. If they would build like a realistic list, um, I, don't, I think the, the parking lot mechanic, the, the, the parking lot phenomenon would be largely mitigated. Mm-hmm. The problem is every, I mean, team Yankee is a tank game. I mean, let, let, let's, let's be fair. And they just load up on tanks and yeah, especially if you're the Russians. And um, I mean, they, the, the Russian tanks in team Yankee are OP as it is. And they're still like one third the power. So you need three times as many before you know it. Yeah. You've got a parking lot. Yeah. So I thought it, maybe we shrink it down and use the same rule set and their um, their TOE and everything. And because um, that's what these are based off of is the uh, squad set, you know, lists in Team Yankee. Um, and just put them on the table, you know. So. I don't, is it one-to-one in Team Yankee? Like, you know, the squad or is it, you know, a tank represents? In Team Yankee, it's still one tank is one tank. It's okay. basically squad level. Yeah. So, like, a stand of infantry is like a team or something, and then a vehicle is a vehicle. Yeah. The only other rule that I tend, the general mechanic that grinds my gears in Team Yankee a little bit, I call it, like, the Mexican jumping bean effect. And it's their way to avoid headhunting. I get it. And, uh, you know, otherwise every platoon leader would die first. Every company commander would die first. And it's okay. If you hit the company commander, he's like on a quantum state. He wasn't really there. He was in the next tank over or something like that. So I don't know how you would fix that, but maybe if you like put like a tiny little like red dot underneath your tank or something like that, that in other words, your opponent can't see it. Mm -hmm. And then if, but if he points at that tank and you flip the tank over to reveal that that was the commander, then he's, he's out of commission. Yeah. He's either dead or he's wounded or he's looking for a new tank or something, you know. Um, I mean, in the way as it should be. I mean, in actual com- – I'm not a tanker by any means. Um, never, You know, that armor was never my thing. Um, but, you know, when we were out practicing with laws or, you know, w- whatever anti-tank um, weapon we had, um, we didn't know who the tank commander was unless somehow you were able to identify him based on actions, you know, him standing out of the cupola and giving orders and saying to move around. But every vehicle has a track commander. You know, he may not be the platoon or company commander, but you have a track commander. So, you know, you, you do what you, you got to do. Morning, everybody. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the show. Tuffy, Jen, Damon. Damon, we were just talking about you. Right yeah. Now. Your ears must so, have been burning. But I, I, I like your idea about that, Jim. I mean, obviously... 
I mean, I understand the reason for their rule. We ran across the problem when I was tinkering around with Battle Carry Sabo. Uh -huh. Is why doesn't everyone just instantly shoot at the commander? Um, and this does happen uh, in World War II. Uh, Russian tank companies of 10 tanks, only the company commander would have a radio. So all the Germans had to do was look for that one tank that has a, that has an antenna. Mm -hmm. Oh, ping. And then the company falls apart. I mean, even if the crews weren't badly trained, they don't have a radio. They can't talk to each other. Sure. Um, so it definitely does happen. If, if you can identify somehow which vehicle the commander is, the problem is that in some games, um, Team Yankee is certainly not the only one. You can very easily tell who the commander is because you've got like this God's eye game perspective and all the commanders are dead. And, yeah. you know, now all the command and control rules activate and the game falls apart. Um, there's a couple of ways to handle it. You can either have that hidden somehow. That's what I'm talking about. Like, okay, this tank's blown up. You flip it over. There's no red doubt that wasn't the commander. Yeah. Um, or the way we tried to do it in battle carry Sabo. Okay, cool. You knocked out the commander. Like you said, every tank has a, has, has a, has a TC in it. Okay. Well, the next guy in line is now, you know, there's four tanks in a platoon and or a troop. Um, depending on the parent unit and boom, the next guy takes over. Now it's not as great. You might have a three instead of a four or something like that as mm -hmm. far as a command rating, but you know, that's, that's literally how it goes. Mm -hmm. It also allows you to really highlight the difference between a Western style army and a old school cold war Soviet style army. Cause some of their commanders were pretty good. Some of their commanders, you know, we all like to make fun of the Russians these days. It's kind of in fashion for some reason. I can't imagine why. Um, the problem is once he goes, or he, even if he just loses his radio, even if he's not physically dead, who's taken over now? I mean, Soviet NCOs were not trained to act as their officers. Um, you know, corporals couldn't do sergeants jobs. Privates couldn't do corporals jobs. Lieutenants couldn't do captains jobs. Mm -hmm. And if you could actually knock out that one over centralized command point, yeah, the force would more or less disassemble itself right there in the field. So if you've got your commander with a rating of five and everyone else in your same some sort of commander rating and everybody else has a one, okay, you knock out the commander, that's a big deal. And an American force or a British force or a West German force, the commander might have a five, but his XO has a four. And then first company commander has a three, second company commander has a three. Mm -hmm. So even if you do, they're, they're a lot more resilient when it comes to uh, command structure. So um, I just thought of something, Jim. Why don't you give a little bit of background for people who may not know about Battle Carry Sabo? Um, Battle Carry Sabo was the the embryonic beginnings of a game. Uh, never got finished. That was kind of I don't want to say Team Yankee, but it was it was modern tank combat. Damon's mm -hmm. played it a couple times. I think you and uh, Rasmus tried it yep. in Korea. Yeah. Um, you and Rasmus also tried it in the Gulf. That's what, what it was originally designed for. Uh, 73 Easting, Medina Ridge, stuff like that. 1991 yeah. Gulf War games. It was rolled out as part of our 30th anniversary content for uh, the Gulf War in January and February 1990, or excuse me, 2021. Mm -hmm. So it's a couple of years old. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that Korea game. I got my ass handed to me. Got stuck in that valley, and there was nothing I could do. So it's um, <laughs> like one to two thousand is technically the scale. Um, it's virtual minis because at one to two thousand, good. I don't even know how many like 
it's like a third of a millimeter as far as scale goes. It's mm-hmm. really, really small. Um, but each inch was like 50 meters or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the way we, the way the, the, the virtual miniatures or playing pieces, whatever you want to call it, were designed was you would have like the little tank, but of course the tank isn't really that size. It'd be like the size of a, one of those German rats you read about, <clears throat> but there's a little blue dot that indicates where the tank really is. And then these little arcs, so there's no argument about arc. Because, yeah, if an inch is 50 meters, then a tank is, like, very, very small. Mm -hmm. A quarter of an inch, not even, an eighth of an inch, including the barrel. So you would never be able to honestly, hey, wait a minute, is that a flank shot? Is that not a flank shot? We tracked ammunition. We tracked command levels. We tracked gunner skills. It uh, it wasn't nearly the size of Team Yankee. Like, you would want to put maybe a platoon versus a Soviet company or something like that. Total of 15 tanks on the table between both sides and that's a big game but yeah it was uh it was an attempt to do like a more detailed uh or take a more detailed look at um modern or ultra modern armored warfare uh in a war gaming setting yeah no i thought it went very well i thought the game was good i had fun even though i got my butt handed to me i thought it was fun uh damon asks uh wasn't shoot the aerials and nato standard as well um, yeah, we're talking about shooting at Soviet tanks with uh, radio antenna. Um, all Russian tanks have had radios since more or less 1943, but the commander might have additional antenna. So it, with Russians, also Russians are so rigid, and, or I should say Soviets, um, in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s were usually pretty rigid in their uh, like field deployments. Like, the, oh, there's... There's the three platoons of three. Where's the guy in the back of those three platoons? He's probably the company commander. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be able to tell like that. I mean, NATO's armor formations were usually trained, you know, not to be quite so obvious. In, I mean, never mind looking at the letters or the numbers on the tank or how many radio antenna it has or its EM signature or anything like that. Just, bro, you're, <laughs> you're, you're behind this triple wedge of three platoons of three. It might, you know, be a little obvious as far as, you know, who the uh, company commander is. Sure, sure. And to answer Tuffy Year's question about homework, um, a few shows ago, she mentioned... Uh, what's oh, yeah, we're supposed uh, to watch a movie. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, I have not had a chance to do that yet. Uh, I promise I will get it in, and I will do a full report for you, Tuffy Years. Um, Tuffy Years, I'm on vacation, so... <laughs> So, yeah, um, which leads me to another interesting question, Jim, as we sit here and we talk about Team Yankee. Um, I, I, I loved the boot camp. It was fun, you know, for um, – and I think that's where you and I officially met, right? Uh, uh, physically uh, met, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was very well-supported, and everybody was there, and we had fun, and, you know – People got to blow up tanks, and the and the, the tables looked awesome. You know, we. I still remember the interview you did with uh, with me and Bruce Lee. Oh yeah. You were asking, you why, why, Jim? Why did you pick the Russians? I was like, <laughs> six hind gunships. Yeah, but you know, right? The, uh, six hind gunships. Anyone over? Okay, I can't get any answer out of him. Let me talk to uh, to Andrew. He's like, Bruce, why did you pick uh, the? <laughs> He's honestly the exact same reason. <laughs> exactly yeah hind gunships and i i think the americans had cobras right if i'm not mistaken yeah but only like two um, yeah so 
It was just no, the way the, no, the that way was the, that was it. Just the way that the packs were. And I was like, yeah, I'll take six. And they were like true one one to one hundred fifteen mil. So a hind is like, including the rotors. Yeah, like they, they were that. huge. Yet six yeah. of them, you couldn't even set them up on a four by four table. The rotors are all like interlocking. Like, how are they flying like that? Uh, they're at different altitudes <laughs> or something. You know, you make up some kind of bullshit. Reason. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it was a good time. So, my question to you, Jim, is we, we, you have played multitude of rule sets for miniature-based gaming. So, let's keep it in uh, the modern-ish, you know, um, 80s. Well, we can say any era, you know, Cold War era on up. What would be your go-to miniatures-based rule set? Oh, it's been pretty obvious. Uh, the only... The only um, determination factor in the question is is this more of a tank game or more of an infantry game like what's what's the group in the mood for if we're doing mm -hmm. tanks it's seven days to the river Rhine. okay full stop um it, it it takes a lot of uh what we see in other rule sets and it kind of fixes it and uh for infantry it's still force on force and i stress first edition because i hear a second edition has come out and uh yeah I haven't heard anything about second. I've heard a few. Is things. it actually out now? I've heard a few things. About, well, well, um, people are playing it. I know that. Okay. People are playing okay. uh, it enough to complain about it, and uh -oh. um, I'm listening to it. And it sounds like they streamlined some of the rules, and maybe some of the rules are almost uh, streamlined a little too much. Mm. Like some stuff okay. got like not even like certain units, but like certain tactics got nerfed. Things like Overwatch and Ambush. I I haven't played the game myself, so I reserve judgment, but. Um, some of my friends who tried uh, Force on Force are like, they still play it. Um, they're just using this, you know, like once in a while they'll just kind of bring in an old first edition rule and use it for some things gotcha. that change that they may not have liked. But first, edi yeah. uh, first edition Force on Force, Ambush Alley Games co uh, cooperating with Osprey Publishing. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And again, if it's any kind of vehicle or tank heavy game, you know, um, Seven Days to the River Rhine by Great Escape Games, uh, introduced to me by Piotr. He's like, hey, because Piotr and I used to like to, you know, bitch about other games all the time, um, <laughs> especially offline when the cameras aren't on. And he's like, hey, I think I found something that kind of fixes that. And sure enough. Interesting. Okay. Excellent. My um, favorite thing about Seven Days to the River Rhine yeah. is that it's a simple game. I mean, it's, it's, it's knowingly savvy kind of almost cagely simple like the guys who came out with seven days to the river Rhine are like look everyone likes to bolt on because it's it's most war gamers are old you know 40 and 50 year old you know vet bros or whatever uh when it comes to modern war gaming a lot of them are and they all mm -hmm. know better than everybody else because oh i was actually in what branch did you serve in so when a war game rule comes out they're gonna dump in all their you know, how we did it in our day, kind of special rules or whatever. Right. And a game that is already a complete, you know, probably overcomplicated rule set, and you start dumping additional rules on top of that, it's going to get unstable. It's going to fall apart. Seven Days to the River Rhine, some people say, like, it's almost too simple. It's like a bare slab of concrete. This is a tank. It has tracks on both sides. There's this little pew-pew gun thing that spins around the turret. <laughs> but they know and if you go to like their facebook community like people are coming out with their own lists their own rules um their own tactical advantage cards there's special things for um different nato armies there's a thing in there for the yom kippur war there's things in there for all kinds of different lists 
it starts out as the classic, you know, oh, wow, here we go again, 1985, the Soviets are invading Germany kind of thing. But there are people building lists and armies and rule addendums for everything between Korea and certain wars that might happen in the future and, you know, all over the place. So sure. it's a very community-friendly game, to be sure. Awesome. So I might use that rule set instead of Team Yankee to do these guys. So I picked it up. I just haven't had a chance to read through it. Oh, it's, um, it's very simple. It's, it, some people, like if you just read the book, you'd be like, oh, this is almost too simple. Mm-hmm. Like There's only three speeds in the game. Tanks don't have their own speeds. There's infantry, vehicle, and fast vehicle. It's like literally that simple. Um, wow. but it knows that people are going to add their own rules on top of that. And if you just go, I just search like in Facebook, seven days to the river Rhine, um, not seven days to the Rhine. That's a hex encounter game on the operational scale, seven days to the river Rhine. Um, they added that river in there just to distinguish it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll see that the community, like you have a little file section under their, uh, their Facebook group. There's like a whole library of additional resources that the communities put together. They play tests against each other. Uh, against each other um great communication great discussion it's it's a very yeah like i said a very community friendly game awesome uh speaking of rules uh i have been sent a copy of uh i believe it's the alpha or beta version of the second edition of skirmish sangin oh cool uh, so he asked me to give it a read through and uh do some test play which i will do um I need some miniatures. I don't have any miniatures anymore. So, um, but that will segue into our news because there's actually some miniatures I wanted to show off. I do have some news items. Um, so why don't we cut over to some news pages first and that will lead us into some other things. So let me share a screen here and I'm going to share a tab. So the first thing we're going to talk about is this. So let me get up to the top. This is from the charge blog from Michael charge. Uh, he created a little flow chart. If you guys are into flow charts about how specter miniatures and specter operations, the rule set and asymmetrical warfare became, um, back in the day, the original specter miniatures, uh, was a Kickstarter by Stephen May. And then it developed into a rule set. And he created the rules, and then eventually he brought in uh, Matt Adams to help define the rules. Matt is a career military British military officer who now, basically, for lack of better words, consultant, uh, military consultant to uh, everywhere in the world, essentially. Um, so they created uh, Spectre rules. A uh, second edition had come out. And then Matt, um, due to work and life, uh, stepped away from Spectre. And then somewhere along the line, he um, felt that he could create a rule set too. So he created Asymmetrical Warfare. So this kind of explains that. Let me move on to the next one I want to show you all in, in, the, in the news. And this is Plastic Soldier Company. And I don't know why it's showing that page, but um, let's see if I get it to come up here. So there's like the British Vickers uh, machine guns. Uh, So these are all the new releases uh, from there. 
they have the Eighth Army British. Uh, Eighth Army was in Africa, right, Jim? Right. Um, yeah, Eighth Africa, later Sicily, later Italy. Although and then they have, a lot of yeah. the units in Eighth Army bounce around between different corps and army groups. Like when you're thinking Eighth Army, a lot of people think like Desert Rats, Seventh Armor Division. Mm-hmm. They get moved around between. Like they're all in Twenty First Army Group. They're in Thirty Corps. Uh, they're in the war up in you know Northwest Europe and Holland and all that stuff like that. So the men of Eighth Army are literally all over the place. But officially, the Eighth Army is in yeah North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. So they have some new releases. There's a mortar team. Looks good. And then let me. I've got a lot of uh, 15 millimeter uh, PSC infantry. They make they make really good kits, and you get a lot for it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to show the Romans. Uh, I do love me some Romans. So there's some veteran Roman troops. So they've come out with a whole bunch of uh, uh, kits for uh, the rule set uh, Mortem Glorium. I believe it's how it's pronounced. Uh, so they have quite a bit. So you can even get a late Roman starter army for 56 pounds or 66 pounds. That's a lot of guys for 66 pounds. So um, very nice. Plastic Soldier Company. And PSC is the ones that actually had come out with. Wait a minute. Where, where's the, uh, which, which, which product were we just looking at? The uh, 50 millimeter late Romans here. See them? Let me that's like that, that's this. like eighty bucks. Yeah. Huh. And what scale is that? Fifteen. I wonder if that's a typo. No, it couldn't be. Never mind. So I bought uh, like a box of uh, like it's like twenty dollars late war British infantry. I had one hundred and forty four guys in the box, and that was was that from Plastic Soldier totally, Company yeah. or like oh, Vitrix? Most of my um, oh Plastic Soldier Company, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's 110 figures. Got to remember, prices have gone up. Yeah. Plastic's gone up. Uh, shipping's gone up. So, yeah, you can get quite a bit of uh, Russian troops you, there. A lot of the other ones where it's like it's like 18 pounds or three, well, 350 is a different set, but. Yeah. Okay, I guess that's just smaller numbers of guys. I see. Yeah. So the, here's 15 millimeter late Roman cataphracts. Uh 18 pounds, yeah. so roughly $22. Cataphrax is basically heavy armored uh, cavalry, um, third century and back. So late Roman cataphrax, these are more like a cavalry inspired by cataphrax, but yeah, basically heavy gotcha. armored cavalry. Okay. So there's quite a bit there. So if you're looking for some, you know, like, you know, the early, early wars. Then, you know, there you go. All right, moving on. Speaking of Spectre miniatures, um, let me share that screen. They have come out with uh, different minis, and there's the <laughs> Spook <laughs> Limited Collectible. <laughs> What's he doing there? That's pretty awesome. Um, they do have a new rule set coming out. If it's, I think it's released. Uh, or at least, the, and they're going to be PDF. So this is, uh, I believe, the third edition. Yes, this is version three that's coming out. Um, so they they've re, you know, enhanced and refined and all that good stuff. So um, that will be coming out here shortly from Spectre. 
But that that the spook, the limited collectible, he's, that's pretty he's cool. He's literally literally ready for ghost hops. <laughs> <laughs> true that, true that. So, um, yeah, they have some nice minis. They have I some like really the nice civilians. Minis. Yeah, they've always had um, really good civilians. I actually had ordered their HVTs, yep. their high value targets. Uh, you know, they were basically um, plays on world leaders at the time. So, you know, you could use them for what they were. So that, that's Spectre doing really good. So, uh, like, let's see. the Trump figure had, like, his own special of orange paint that came with him. You would have to. <laughs> Nobody ever has been this color before, so we're including the paint because it's kind of a strange. Uh... <laughs> All right, moving on. Speaking of asymmetrical warfare, it's been released. Uh, you can buy it through Drive Through RPG. It's literally twelve dollars. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen this version. on Facebook, but I didn't really investigate yeah. into it. Yeah, so he has created his own version uh, of a modern rule set. Um, and the nice thing about this one is that a percentage of the proceeds goes to veteran charities. Oh hell yeah! So, That's pretty good. Yeah. So I'll be uh, buying this and um, yeah, again, let me know. I, 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 I don't want to judge a book by its cover, but simply by its name, again, uh -huh. which is no, no indication really. Um, way too many modern rule sets are not really asymmetrical. They put, you know, you know, tier one operators versus tier one operators. And I'm sure that's fun. And I'm sure once in a while it happens, but mm. we were asking for like the best um, or my favorite, you know, a modern uh, miniature set. And for infantry battles, mm -hmm. it's always force on force because maybe asymmetrical warfare will be number two, but or, or be a second one. But for mm -hmm. now, force on force, at least in my experience, again, I never played Skirmish Sangin, or so I could be wrong about this. It was the first game that I found that actually knew what asymmetrical warfare like really meant. Like, there's literally two rule books in the book, in the two sides. Like, like when I'm running it at the club. I warn everybody in advance, this game is not fair and mm -hmm. it's asymmetrical. So you guys over here playing the Marines, what you're doing. Okay. Don't look at something that your opponent does and then say, okay, I want to use that rule. I want to do that. I'm like, no, you can't. It's illegal for you. It's legal for him and vice right. versa that you're literally playing two different rule sets. And uh, the winner is the guy who um, makes the opponent play his game, which is, you know, Vietnam in a nutshell, both Afghanistan's in a nutshell. It's it's Iraq, it's Somalia. It's you know the guy who makes it his war is the one who's going to win. Yeah. No, very true, very true. So um, I will get a download of that and go through it. But again, I don't have minis, which leads me to the next one and our final item for today. And this is from. Uh, in country, uh, they have STL packs, so you can download and print if you have a printer your own minis. So, um, you know, I'll be able to use these. And there's a ton of other miniature companies out there. Um, and then there's some covert kill teams, but they have quite a bit. I like the breach. That uh, one guy had a breaching shotgun. Yeah. That, that, to get through the door. I don't think it was yeah. in the slide. It, it was in one of the slides. It looked like. Maybe I wasn't looking at it closely. I could have sworn I saw like a breaching shotgun, like one of those um, like Ithaca uh, M870s, like the like the cops use. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I might have not been looking at it right. Okay, never mind. Sorry. 
That's okay. I mean, and then like I said, they have basically you become a supporter. There's like a Patreon type thing, and then every month that they release, you know, a new pack like here, you get you know some lack of better words, some terrorist type dudes. Um, Ski masks and AKMs. Yeah. If you carry an AK and wear a mask, you're a terrorist. It's you know? it's a classic look. I think it's very great for the fall season. <laughs> <laughs> Some things just never and go out of style, Bill. Some things gym. just never go out of style. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, there's a hazmat team. I like those you know? douches we saw a second ago. Can never have enough douches. You want to see that? There there you go. Go. Bring that up for you. Yeah, that time I recognize it. You, you can't. Oh, in fifties yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, he's got he's got mini guns. He's got looks like a Mark 19 in there, or maybe that's uh, some kind of possibly uh, giving Mark. Yeah, it looks like a Mark 19, and then you got a. No, it's 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 uh, a it's you know what it is. It's it's a um, the shorter jacket for the M2. Like like there's almost two mall deuces on there. I guess you put the barrel. Yeah. Um, I don't know. No, because the charging handle is different. That probably is no. a Mark 19. Never mind. Yeah, it looks like a Mark 19. But yeah, I mean so. If you're looking for minis and if you have a good printer, um, Frogmen, I know what these Frogmen, do you know where these Frogmen are from? Which country? Uh, with the little um, the veils bags over their head? No. They're Danish. Nice. Uh, I actually read uh, and saw a video about the Danish special forces, seals, whatever they're called, but they're Frogmen. They wear these hoods, these veils. That's like their... They're a they're, thing, they're, they're you know. Trademark. Yeah, see, it says Danish frog oh, cool. right there. Yeah, and then you know, again, so there's all kinds of miniatures here for. Isn't that the uh, Russian 50 cal rifle there? That big fat thing. Uh, either that or one of those automatic uh, close assault shotguns. Yeah. I'm not really familiar no. with those kind of weapons, but yeah, something. It's got definitely a huge barrel on it. Yeah. So. But there are some of the options you can get with you know, SWAT teams, veteran insurgents. Nice little uh, riot shield on that one SWAT guy. Yeah. Yeah, and and they pride themselves on their detail. Yeah, so. like you can tell, like that's not just like an AK. That's an AKM. You see that little um, shovel type muzzle break there on the very front. Uh -huh. It's you know, like you can tell, like in a miniature, if you can tell what caliber the AK is. It's definitely one of the old 762s, not one of the new 545s. Nice. So there you go. That is what I had in the news uh, for new releases. So I will have to see if I can get some of these guys ordered up. Um, I don't have a printer anymore. I either have to buy one or see if Chris can print them for me. Um, <laughs> that's what she said. So, all right, let's transition into our topic. What is the best era of wargaming? Now, it's a twofold question. Uh, what it was the best era to play or wargame in? And the second side, the B side, if you will, is what was the best era for wargaming? Meaning, was it the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, 2000s? So I'll let you go first, sir. Oh, man. Uh, I know everyone's expecting me to say like the late 70s um, as far as the best era of war gaming's history. Um, 
that's when like a lot of really great games were coming out. Avalon Hill was huge. SSI was just getting started. Uh, mm-hmm. Victory Games was was still kind yeah. of a division of Avalon Hill, but I mean, and it wasn't just oh because Pain's Leader, oh because you know, I mean, yeah, that was a big part of it. But um, uh, probably the game that eventually knocked back Pain's Leader off the hill uh, was Advanced Squad Leader, Squad Leader, and Advanced Squad Leader. That was just getting started. Yeah, and Victory Games was going into like James Bond games, like they came up with a different module for every movie. So I mean, there was a lot of uh, you know really fun stuff. Uh, um, Steve Jackson was just getting started with Car Wars, yeah. and you know some of that stuff. Um, people were kind of complaining, but because it was like drawing attention away from wargaming, I thought it just brought in a whole bunch of new people. I know that sounds very egalitarian, but um, TSR had just bought Dragon Quest and pretty much chopped it up and turned it into the beginnings of what we call D&D. Um, so a lot of really big and influential stuff that was going to kind of echo through the future decades kind of got started in the, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, all that said, there was no internet. So, yeah. honestly, I would say almost a split between the late 1970s and honestly, uh, right now. Um because, you know, a lot of new rule sets are out there. People can kind of design their own rule sets, publish them themselves. Uh, I'm going to be working with Mark Ritchie on helping him uh, publish uh, his actual war game uh, set, Tactical Combat. Nice. We've seen it 100 times, not 100, but mm-hmm. we've seen it at least 20 times here on the Sit Rep podcast. And people keep asking, where's this rule set? And he's got it written down. It's almost like Darkstar was for me, you know, a couple years ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just got to put it together in such a way where it's able to be published. It's also like Valorant Victory Modern Expansion. Um, Modern uh, Valorant Victory by Barry Doyle. And then I was, you know, tinkering around with a modern version of it for three or four years and finally said, look, somebody write these rules down. So I reached out to Barry Doyle. I said, I'm going to publish this on Board Game Geek if you're cool with it because it's your game. And uh, yeah, his basic attitude was, uh, I sent him like the first, you know, draft, and he was like, "This is, you know, awesome." In fact, if anything, you're taking something off my plate because I was meaning to do this, but he was trying to get into other projects. Sure. But the point is, um, you know, sooner or later, you have to sit down and actually write the rules. There's a lot more of that now. We're in the age of desktop publishing. Um, you know, like a lot of people say, "Oh, it's." You know, 3D printing. And honestly, even though I'm not into 3D printing, 3D printing is a, is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can almost make your own miniatures. You can, you know, custom design your own miniatures in some ways. Uh, I'm not really an expert in that field, but anything that puts more power into the, you know, uh, or more creativity into the hands of the, uh, the, the, of the of the consumer, that might not be the most market-friendly thing to say, but honestly, you know, it's 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 about the community first. And uh, the community's got more options now between desktop publishing, um, tabletop printing, uh, and, you know, availability of rule sets. So, yeah, to wrap up, between the 1970s and now, I'm honestly kind of split as far as, like, if I had to pick, like, an actual era, like, which one would, would, mm-hmm. would be better? Okay. All right. For That's for war game. What's the best era to war game? Oh, I don't know. Um... I mean, I know what my favorites are. They're not always the most popular. I guess World yeah. War II is pretty popular. Um, my favorite is probably Moderns. Um, but if I was going to be more objective about it, I would almost say like Black Powder. Yeah. Because Black Powder is the era where it's close enough to be somewhat 
you know, relatable. And at the same time, anything with black powder, i.e. before the invention of uh, like, you know, a smokeless powder, which is, you know, it just burns much more efficiently. That's where your range is coming. The average mm-hmm. engagement range in the civil war going back is like what, 300 yards. Um, so you could actually stage a big game on a table, have it look visually amazing. And at the same time, almost, you know, tactically approximate. Um, and, and people put tanks on the table or you know, anything after the invention of smokeless gunpowder. So pretty much 1900 forward. And uh, it might look amazing to some people, but I, I just can't, you know, and it's it's not to bash on anyone's system, but, you know, it's, oh, this, I, I like to play tabletop miniature wargaming because it looks better. I'm like, it really doesn't because these tanks should be 40 feet apart on your 15 millimeter table. Um, and they don't. So I already have to kind of close one eye and tilt my head sideways uh, <laughs> when looking at anybody's miniature table. I don't care how nice your buildings are, your trees. Um, but with black powder, you don't really have that problem. So I, I would almost, if you wanted to go with miniatures, I would almost go with something in the black powder era. It's not my favorite, but to be objective, yeah, that's what I would go with. I would agree with you. Because um, if you think about it, black powder, that's going to give you the American... War for Independence, it's going to give you 1812, it'll give you Civil War, Napoleonics, you know, uh, up to the Zulu War. Well, was was that considered smokeless powder? They had close I mean, they cartridges. were bullets, yeah. cases. So, I mean, screw it. Anything up to 1900, right? Yeah. Um, or even thereabouts. Like, they didn't have smokeless gunpowder in the big battleship shells like the battle of Tsushima, 1904, 1905, the Russo Japanese mm-hmm. war. So yeah, like say pre-world war one. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, it's the most visually appealing, uh, era, you know, you've got, I mean, just look at the Napoleonics. I know we've talked about it before, but if you pull up a painting guide for the armies of the Napoleonic wars, You've got, you know, every, it's essentially the European war, right? It was the continent of Europe was in war because pretty much any of the major countries during that time period had an army fighting in those battles. Oh, the, uh, the um, uh, Napoleonic Wars? It's yeah. basically the real World War Two. Yeah. The real World War One so, being the Seven Years' War. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got... Every pretty much any color on the spectrum, you'll be able to paint your your military with. I mean, there was green uniforms, blue uniforms, red uniforms, so on and so on and so on. Um, it's, it's the one. So it's the you, one thing that Napoleonics has over American Civil War. American Civil War. It's not completely monochromatic, but it's pretty close. Yeah. So, um, I I just it still blows my mind that those guys just stood in a line face to face, and go shoot me, and then I'm going to shoot you. Yeah, um, and we'll see who gets hit. You, you be, there's two big reasons for that. Yeah. Um, and the reason a lot of people kind of think that is because we've seen way too many uh, movies where they reflect almost like modern day casualty rates. I still, I, I always threaten I'm going to do this. One of these days I'm going to do this where like in the Patriot, the two lines line up against each other. And then mm-hmm. the British officer drops the sword and he says fire and they open fire. And I'm going to cut to the MG 42 on Omaha beach from saving private Ryan, because the number of guys that fall out of the continental line, um, 
is just absurd. And when you look at it like that, yeah, it's absurd for guys to just line up on these blocks. Well, three things. Number one, you could do that at 100 yards and get away with it. You know, those 100 guys across from you, 100 meters away, would fire, and maybe two of your guys would fall. I mean, mm-hmm. have you ever played paintball? It's basically that. And the, the, you actually see the bullet corkscrew spin. Good luck hitting anything. Which leads to the second thing. Um, the reason they lined up in those very tight blocks, it was the only way to possibly manage even uh, an iota of applicable firepower and have them all fire at once. Two yeah. armies just kind of like skirmishing at each other for everything we like to say about the American riflemen in the uh, American uh, Revolution. You could shoot at each other all day and like literally kill almost no one. Um, our losses at the Battle of Copens, 12 killed. Or Cowpens, I should say. 12 killed and like less than 100 wounded. Um, mm-hmm. And that was like 12 hours of fighting. You know, like, like one guy died per hour. Uh, that's how absurdly inaccurate the weapons were. And uh, number two, or I should say number three, it was the only way to control men at that time. There's no radios. There's no, you know, even flags, drums, flutes, stuff like that don't work. There's too much noise. There's too much smoke. So the only way to actually manage an army in those days was to put them all in a tight little group, put a guy with a brightly colored hat and a huge flag, and maybe your guys would be able to follow and follow basic instructions. So it's the only way to control an army. It was the only way to apply firepower. And... Um, yeah, given the, the, the technology of the day, it was really, you know, it, it, you, you could kind of get away with it. Now, that, that pendulum definitely swings. Some people say the Crimean War. I'd say it definitely started in the Crimean War, 1850, 1853. By the time we get to the American Civil War, technology has advanced in some very small ways. I've actually got some here, some recovered uh, Manet balls from an American Civil War battlefield. Oh, wow. Yeah, and these are actual bullets from that war that someone dug out of the ground and like sold in a, out of a uh, out of a museum shop. And as you saw, it wasn't a round ball; it's an actual bullet-shaped bullet. And the back mm-hmm. of it is is concave. The back of it is hollow. And the idea being, when the bullet fires or when the charge fires, it's still a black powder uh, breech load, uh, muzzle loading weapon. But when it fires, that metal expands just enough to where it now fills to an airtight. Like today's technology, today's manufacturing wasn't around back then. Nowadays, you put a bullet in a breech and you expect it to actually fit perfectly into the – it wasn't like that back then. They didn't have those kind of manufacturings. But now the bullet would actually fill, expand a little bit, actually fill the barrel properly. You get like that almost airtight seal. And now it actually leaves the muzzle with a decent amount of velocity. Tiny little things like that. You now had rifled bullets. You had a rifle barrels, barrels that had um, actually fit the bullet. Strange, you know, mm-hmm. wild idea there. Have the bullet and your gun be the same <laughs> size. And, you know, now your range just went up to 600 yards. So, the, yeah, you see like Napoleonic casualty rates, Crimean War casualty rates, American Civil War casualty rates go through the friggin' roof because the technology has taken just that one pace forward and technology is always one step ahead of tactics. And it's like, oh, what we used to do in Napoleonic terms doesn't work anymore. But right. in to your point, previously to, to set up an army like that really did actually make a weird kind of sense. Well, that makes sense now that you've explained it. I mean, once it didn't, it really didn't. And you get battles like Shiloh. You get battles like Second Manassas, Big Gettysburg, Antietam. Still the bloodiest day in American history. I mean, by far. 
Um, so once it didn't make sense, it didn't make sense. But yeah, it happens again in World War One. You know, oh, we can maneuver like this in front of enemy entrenchments. Now, see, there's this thing called the machine gun now. Yeah, breech-loading <laughs> yeah, artillery. Right. You might want to rethink your tactics. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I, I like the point you made that technology is ahead of tactics. So we're always adjusting to technology. You know, it's never the opposite as far as I'm concerned. No, and it's just because of the way the military is set up. The military is set up in such a way, like, mili- like you know, God knows, you know, better than most. Um, the military is not like other professions um, where, oh, we're always trying new synergies and looking to the future. The military is like, look, in our job, mm-hmm. if you have a bad day at work, you didn't spill coffee on your keyboard, you know, your best friend just got his, you know, pancreas blown out by a mortar shell and he died mm-hmm. in your arms screaming for his parents. You know, we, our job's a little bit more serious than most people's jobs. So we stick to what works. The Amer- the, uh, the military is much more hidebound. The people who are writing the field manuals, the technical manuals, the guys who are establishing the doctrines are sergeant majors and generals who have been in for 30 years. So the, it kind of sucks to say, but I'll, and I'll, when it comes to technology versus, especially in recent centuries, technology versus tactics, yeah, technology is always at least half a step ahead. And um, when that's more pronounced, yeah, yeah, you've got ridiculous casualty rates. Is 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 the symptom of that? You can always tell when, to, like, like, just reading through history, when is technology mm-hmm. really ahead of tactics? Look at the casualty rates. The casualty yeah. rates are really, really high and the battlefield's not moving anywhere like trench warfare in world war one that's technology is ahead of tactics when tactics are ahead of technology or even close uh that's when you get wars like world war ii where okay the casualties are higher because the battles are bigger but percentage wise the casualty rates are actually much lower in world war ii than world war one and more importantly there's a lot more movement you know people are actually getting shit done um that's just you know War is not supposed to stand in one place for an extended period of time. You're supposed to be moving toward an objective. You're supposed to be going somewhere. And right. um, that's when, you know, you see that in different conflicts. Most definitely. Um, Damon made an excellent point about uh, late cent- 19th century muzzle velocity and penetration. So, um, yeah. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And it's a series of, of technological improvements. I'm just familiar with the Manet ball because, you know, I'm an American, so American civil war, but you've got like the Prussian needle gun, uh, that you saw in the, uh, the Austro Prussian wars. Uh, and you get like your first real breech loaders. Like you see like the Henry Martini rifle in, in the Zulu wars mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, the Indian wars out West. And yeah, once the engagement ranges, anyone who plays Panzer Leader will be able to tell you this. It's not how powerful the gun is. Who cares how big your bullet is? A nine millimeter will kill you just as fast as a 50 cal. Um, right. It's how far that, that sucker is going to reach. And tactically, how long you're going to have to be running before you can cross that open ground. Um, if he can engage you at a thousand meters, like let's, let's just bring it back to wargaming terms. If the enemy can engage you at a thousand meters, you're now spending three movement phases under opportunity fire. If his gun can only reach a hundred meters, you've only got to pass mm-hmm. through one. And even yeah. if each one kills 50% of your guys, okay, well, it's going to be a bloody charge, but you can get through one movement phase. If you got to get through three movement phases, 50 times 50 times 50, you're down to 12% of your people, you know? Your casualty rate just tripled, or actually no, quadrupled. So it's yeah, and it's the range. Like you play early war Panzer leader, and it's like almost a breath of fresh air. 
no one's gun shoots further than, than three hexes. And you're just like doing these ballet moves. Oh, I feel like Udarian. Look at these bold flanking <laughs> maneuvers I can do. Yeah, try that shit in 44. You know, <laughs> the guns all, I mean, yes, the guns are more powerful, but so is everyone's armor. Everyone's armor is thicker. So that delta yeah. never really changes. What changes out of all proportion is the range. You try that stuff in 44, 45, and somebody with an 88 or a 17 pounder is going to take your head off from, you know, three miles away. It's, 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 it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's all about the range. Exactly. So the second part of my response to the topic today is the era, best era, or the, yeah, the best era for war gaming the, to the, play the, it. The, the publishing era, right? The publishing era, and I agree with you 100. It's the 70s, 70s into the early 80s. Um, before I get into examples, because you've pretty much made them all, but 70s into the early 80s. Mid eighties to mid nineties was a desert for wargaming in a lot of ways. The computer took over. Yeah. The personal computer wrecked a lot. What the personal computer took away a lot of the players, but the personal computer wasn't advanced enough to actually take the place. You know, like Harpoon. It pretty much sank games like Harpoon, but Harpoon on PC didn't come out until like ninety two, I think. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Tuffier says the American Civil War, the English had at least a dozen civil wars before the colony put their oar in on the trend. I agree. I mean, the English had England had a lot of, you know, I guess you could call them civil wars. Um, well, there's you know, the one actual for. English Civil War. Then there's right. the Barons War, the War of the Roses. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd call that a brag. I mean, that that's kind of a weird flex. You know, our country has devoured <laughs> itself more times than yours has. Um, okay, <laughs> you win. Um, but, yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, English history, British history. Well, British history, then English history, and before that, who knows. Um, mm-hmm. That's definitely uh, definitely a lot longer than ours. I mean, sure. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, but getting back to our topic. So, yeah, I mean, if you th- look at it, late 60s, you had Avalon Hill coming on the scene. You know, with tactics too, and then you know, from there you had Panzer Blitz and Panzer Leader, and so on. They had such an extensive catalog back in the '70s and early '80s. Um, and the thing about about Avalon Hill is, you could go into any bookstore and buy their games. They were on the shelf. You know, right. remember the bookcase games? Absolutely. I mean, you had several of them. Uh, you could go into the predecessor of orders and barnes and noble and go into those bookstores and if you went back you could find a shelf that had avalon hill games on it um yeah like like walden books used to have like their own little section yeah walden books yep used to love going to walden books uh so yeah that's why like we've had the discussion before about like you know What's your favorite game? Why is it historically, historically being like publishing wise, historically? And I always mention Panzer Leader is, yeah, people were playing tactical war games before that in, you know, church basements, those weird guys that no one else liked to talk to. Um, it was a very, very almost underground kind of a thing. Uh, games like Avalon or game companies like Avalon Hill, um, there were others. So I'll, I'll say like Avalon Hill. Uh, mm-hmm. were the ones that came out and said, like, look, this is a normal thing. You can buy this for 10 bucks in those days. And, um, you know, 
you could theoretically still be playing it today. Yeah. Really brought yeah. it into the mainstream. Exactly. And then unfortunately, yeah, the computer kind of created the downfall of Avalon Hill. And, you know, they had a few digital versions of some of their games. They were never very good, truly. I don't think. That's my personal opinion. No, you're right. Yeah. Um, it, it, in like the mid 80s, computer gaming was like, whoa, like console, like the Atari 2600 was coming out, the Commodore yeah. 64, the Commodore 128. This is turning into a retro gaming stream here. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> Nothing wrong with don't, that. Don't, don't, don't sue us, Marty. Uh, by the way, quick aside, if anyone's ever into uh, like that kind of like 80s uh, computer and console gaming, um, uh, the Hobby Lodge uh, is a YouTube channel. My friend, uh, you've, I'm sure you've met him. Uh, Marty uh, Russell, Martin Russell. In the yeah. UK. Uh, yeah. Great, great channel. A big supporter of our, he was in our aliens game for, uh, for like last Halloween. I think it was a nice. uh, big supporter, but um yeah, those games came out in the 80s, like those platforms were really getting going. And not to trash talk uh, Avalon Hill, but Avalon Hill by then had a lot of competition. Victory Games, SSI, SPI, a lot of this stuff was coming out. There was a lot of competition. Also, Avalon Hill games were getting too complicated. Um, the players always wanted more and more and more detail. Avalon, uh, I should say, uh, Advanced Squad Leader by the mid-80s was absolutely out of control. <laughs> uh, no, it was, and uh, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll die on that hill. It was ASL was just completely bonkers by that point. Yeah. Um, and now comes this fun game with pretty colors that you don't have to like have a college degree just to get through the friggin' rule book or whatever. Okay, cool. So everyone naturally shifted over to that. Now later in the '90s, the computer itself would advance to the point where you could play war games on a computer. But yeah, mm -hmm. like '85 to '92 is like this weird kind of middle ground. Um, kind of no man's land dead space where, yeah, you're absolutely right. It kind of torpedoed, um, not completely, but a lot of the, um, the war gaming market. I was really into Faza in those days and mm -hmm. Legions Battletech, which isn't really historical. Yeah. So those ga the games still were kind of around, but yeah, they absolutely did take a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Um, and I remember playing by mail. Do you remember play by mail? I never tried it, but I know people who did I never had the patience. And talk about it. a game lasting forever in a day. You have to <laughs> you like know? pick a company, um, like I don't know, a random like company on the New York Stock Exchange, and watch their stock price, and that was your die roll. Because <laughs> I mean, what are you gonna do? Roll a peg, take a, a Polaroid of it and put it in the, in the mailbox in the right. You're like no email, lick a stamp, close exactly. the envelope, drop it in the mailbox, and wait a week or two until you get a response. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I truly, I, to me, this personally, because, you know, it, the golden age was the 70s into the early 80s. I mean, TSR was big then, you they know, were, with yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. They were like and, on first edition D&D. Yeah, you know, and um, they even had war games. They had, uh, what was the, the Desert War one? Oh, the very first one, um, Line in the Sand. Yeah. You know, so came out in 1991. Then, came out the same year the war did. Yeah, I remember I walked into a gaming store in Orlando, Florida, and I, I saw that, and I was like, "This is kind of weird." Like, it's probably one of the <laughs> first times in my life I felt old. I was like 19 at the time, and I was like, "There's a war game for the for the the conflict I was in for." Oh no, I'm, I'm officially an old man now. I'm in the historical war gaming section. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, I mean, now is another, I would say, the second age, golden age of wargaming. Uh, because you can do things like you do, Jim, on the computer to the worldwide audience. Oh, you yeah. You can take Panzer Blitz, Panzer Leader, Arab-Israeli Wars, digitize it, and, and you – it still blows my mind that you do it in Excel versus, you know, every, if you look at the comments on some of your videos, I think somebody recently asked if you're doing it in tabletop simulator. Oh, and, it's always that. It's or, like, are you doing this in Vassal? Are you doing this on tabletop yeah. RPG yeah. Or, or D20 or something? Or it's like so. Yeah. So I do it in Excel just cause I'm kind of a Luddite and it's the, the secret sauce to that system is just creating all the assets ahead of time. So there's nothing advanced in Excel. Like how do you do that in Excel? The real magic, is, or not magic, but the real grunt work is doing it in Photoshop. For mm -hmm. every hour of Excel content that goes out there, there's three hours of Photoshop. Um, and then after that, it's just, just, you know, there's this little thing called insert, and insert image, and you grab it out of your folder and you, you put it in there. And then it's just making sure which hour it's on top. And you can't roll dice that way. Like Excel, people hear Excel and they think that Excel is running the game from a math perspective. It isn't. It's just a collection of images. You mm -hmm. could actually do it in PowerPoint if you wanted to. I mean, it wouldn't look as good, <laughs> but you could technically yeah. do it in PowerPoint. Um, but the reason I do this is because I feel that, you know, especially the kind of games I run, I run old crunchy games. People still like to pick up plastic dice. They don't want to hit a button on a dice app. Um, so they wouldn't want Excel to roll the dice and actually interpret the rules for them. They just want to show it. Uh, it's a way to visually represent the map board and broadcast it to people so everyone can see it. And there you go. There you go. But you're still picking yeah. up your own dice. Okay, there's a there's a little webcam on your dice tray. So, you know, there's no, you know, we, you know we're on the honor system anyway. Yeah. You know, it's easy. Yeah. So, yeah, I think now um, has elevated Wargaming um, to a different level, obviously, um, and made it more accessible to the general public, if you will, um, you know, because it's now available to be digitized. And and the setup isn't as, I mean, outside of your creation, Photoshop and all that, you know, for an average player to come in, you can set it up pretty easily without having to go through and sort counters. You remember how you remember oh, yeah. back in the day you'd get like a game of Panzer Lead or somebody would just throw them in a baggie and then you have to go and sort for hours to make sure you have the right counters. Well, if you were hardcore. You, you probably had the organizational trays, Jim. I'm going to go with you probably had the trays. I never had the trays. I never liked the trays because the trays would spill, <laughs> but I would have little baggies. Yeah. yeah, like Panzer Leader, I had like 15 baggies in there and it looked like I was, you know, rolling drugs or something. I had like tiny <laughs> little plastic baggies. Um, but, um, oh, I can't forget what I was going to say now. Uh, yeah, keep going. So I totally just lost my thought. But, uh, I mean, it, it kind of takes out that part, but you know, in some ways, oh, yeah. if you I were really, I, I apologize. If you were really no, hardcore, you invited your friends over for a counter clipping party. Oh, you're a counter clipper. You have to. Yeah. Well, back in those days you had to, cause the counters back then were, were atrocious. Nowadays, I have no. never. Because the, the way that, I don't know if they use like a laser or something, the counter, yeah. when, when you punch a sheet, it just comes out of there. They're perfect. Uh, but back in the day, man, you had these gigantic hanging chads and uh, on the corners. And if you yep. had an actual game going, like Arab really worse, you would have a stack of counters like that high in a hex. Between There's yeah. four units in the hex. Some of them are carrying infantry. There's unit function markers in there. There's uh, ammunition load markers in there. There's dispersed. You could have like almost looks like a little miniature poker 
stack, you got three or four of these close together in a, in a really important part of the table. And now you have mm -hmm. to, oh, what's the third counter on the bottom of that pile? And you're trying to take it all apart, and it's it was a nightmare. And then what the counters would like hook onto each other via these little dog ears hanging off the corner. Yeah. Of the, it was a mess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I never punched or clipped a counter in my life. Hey, no one to each their no own. No one's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, but uh, yeah, I mean, just just those. It's almost like, um, you know, back when my dad and my uncle were doing uh, the Civil War in miniature. You know, we cast our own figures and all that from you know lead. Yep. Um, I remember spending hours just setting up the battlefield before even playing the game. The game would take like, I don't know, three, three, four hours, but it took us like five hours to set it up, you know, cause you had to organize your guys and put them in the lines and sort. So, I mean, it was like this whole experience outside of just playing the game. So I don't think it's like that anymore. I don't think people have time to do that anymore, to be honest with you. So you know, I don't know why the world is the way it is these days where you don't have time to uh, set up and do all that good stuff like you There's did just back There's a lot of other day. stuff to do. The world's yeah. become more complicated. Um, we have, we have access to remember, more things, so we have, you know. Yeah. Do you remember when they told us when computers were coming out? I, I was in the Army um, in 86, you know, on. And I remember when we got our first computers um, in the in the unit, and they said, Computer's going to change everything. You're going to do less paperwork. It's going to make things easier, you know, yada, yada, save time and be efficient. No. I don't know about you, but I still print a lot of crap. Oh, no, um, I, I, I PDF everything. I haven't, I haven't printed. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to PDFs now. The, but. The, this printer up here hasn't actually worked. I don't know why I don't just throw it out. Um, <laughs> it, it hasn't worked in like eight years, and I don't even care. Yeah. Everything's PDF. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen it. Uh, in my personal and 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 like my job job, I mean nobody nobody prints anything anymore. Yeah, but um, yeah, I can remember those first compu mobile computers we got in the army. They were supposed to be field, you know, operable, so you could go out there and do like our um, adjutant general, our PSC company, our personal services company, could take their computers to the field to do mob packets and stuff like that, and and they were. You remember the uh, SX64, the mobile Commodore computer that was in a huge box? I had one. I actually owned one. I remember uh, the Commodore but was, 64, but like yeah, the, the, the they had civilian a, version. Yeah, the, the Commodore 64 had a portable version. It was a built-in screen. It had a hard, uh, a floppy drive, a keyboard that detached. It was color monitor. The whole night. Oh, yeah, it was like a laptop, but it was like that thick. And yeah, like that was. It, it was like that, a, that was a huge a suitcase. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a Floppy drive? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's time for retro, man. <laughs> I still have these. There's actually data on these, too. Old manuscripts. Awesome. There you go. So, yeah, it's just uh, changing times. Um, I, will, I, I, will, think... I will totally agree with you on this. When computers first kind of came out, and they're like, computers are going to, like, you know, invent the paperless mm -hmm. office. Back in the old 14-inch green bar with the little holes on each side. Paper yes. went through the friggin' roof. <laughs> And they're like, it did the exact opposite. What do you mean paperless office? I could build an office out of document boxes right now. Yeah. And then it settled back down. But for a while, yeah. you know, I think people weren't, weren't used to it. 
And all of a sudden, oh, wait, I can have all the information. I can print everything. And like I used to be like that. I used to print emails and put them in binders so I could refer to them later. It's like, this is back in the 90s. You know, like, yeah. what the hell? Dude? You're missing the point of email. <laughs> Why are you? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think we're in the second golden age of wargaming just because of the accessibility of having digital, you know, um, the internet has helped in a lot of ways and, and, and hurt in some ways because, you know, sometimes people won't get together to play. Luckily for you, Jim, you've got the, the gaming club you guys, you know, are part of. Um, we're looking for a club up here or even starting our own to host um, just so we can get more action going. So uh, I, I think but, that on the yeah. balance, the internet's been a far greater help to wargaming than any, any kind of hindrance. Only because yeah. at the end of the day, like what's wargaming about? Is it about history? Is it about game? Is it about, it's, it's a niche community. And, um, you know, rule 34 of the internet, if it exists, it's out there and you can find, you know, it, it's the fastest way to connect with people that have similar interests. Like I yeah. never would have met Damon without the internet or Bruce Lee or Dylan or, you know, Rasmus or, you know, 50 other people. Right. Honestly, I never would exactly. have met you without the internet. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all good. So guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, I want to thank Jim for coming in on his sabbatical to join me. Otherwise I'd be staring at you guys going, what are we talking about now? Uh, or Dawn would be with me and you know, I love Dawn and she's great, but she doesn't know anything historical or, you know, to her. It's all Harry Potter and uh, Disney. So, um, it's all good. So thank you, uh, to you all as we get ready to say goodbye, have a great week. Uh, we will see you with our next bit of programming, uh, and take care. And if you have anything, oh, you know what? Before I sign off, I wanted to share um, something real quick. Let me do this. Sorry, guys. Um, our Discord channel. Oh, yeah. So if you guys have not been part of our Discord channel yet, please do so. Um, there is an extensive community in our Discord channel. Yeah, we're up to like and, 220 uh, people now. Yeah, and the more importantly, there are two. There is the Andy Zek Painting Award and the Terrain Award. We need you guys to start submitting your submissions uh, for this. And let's see some um, uh, submissions uh, for painting and terrain. And as you can see, we've got stuff in our announcement page showing us, you know, our podcast. We have all these different things. Even Jim has a thing about HK Ops, uh, which is his role-playing uh, rule set. That's really fun if you have not played it. Uh, he did some live streaming on that um, oh, last year day, or yeah. so. I mean, it, there's been time. So if you want to catch up and see that, that's always a good option too. So please join our Discord channel and uh, join in on the amazing community that we have. Um, so we appreciate it. So guys, thank you very much. And we will see you in the next show. Take care. You have been listening to the Citrep podcast. We hope you have enjoyed the show. 
make sure you like and subscribe to all of our channels on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Discord. Remember to join us every other weekend for a new episode of the podcast. And don't forget our other programming on Wednesdays and Sundays. Thanks for listening. 